It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. They wanted to promote a product. They wanted to fill the hunger of the hardcore and stoke the curiosity of the casual. They wanted to pull a process that for decades had existed only in secrecy and shadows out into the limelight. What they didn't know, what they couldn't know, was that they were documenting one of the great baseball stories of all time. Welcome to the 2009 Major League Baseball First Year Player Draft. The Washington Nationals select Steven Strasburg. He strikes out the side. He brings his total to 14. Nolan Arenado. He was drafted in the second round. Career hit number 1,000. Paul Goldschmidt drafted out of Texas State. That's number 200. J.D. was drafted and developed by the Astros. Homers in four consecutive plate appearances. The Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim select Michael Trout. A unanimous American League MVP, Mike Trout. Swinging first pitch, drives one out to center field. That ball is gone! Big fly for Mike Trout! Greetings, baseball fans. I'm Anthony Castrovince, MLB.com national columnist, and this is the first of six installments in our series going deep on the 2009 MLB amateur draft and how it changed baseball. It was June 9th, 2009 an air-conditioned studio in Secaucus, New Jersey. MLB Network was in the second week of its sixth month on the air, and from the day that the brand-new baseball channel had begun plotting out its programming schedule, the first-year player draft had been circled as an elemental airing, an opportunity for the draft to draw people to the network and for the network to draw people to the draft. Greg Amsinger, was tapped to host the network's first draft coverage. We were just trying to put together a smooth, exclusive show. This was our first property that our fledgling network had that no other channel could, you know, have a piece of. So here we have the draft, and we knew that it didn't have the same sort of cachet as others, yet we tried to make it as big as we could and our goal was to take kids that weren't household names, be it present them like they are, while informing people of who in the world they happen to be. From the time Major League Baseball's first amateur draft was held in June of 1965, all the way up until the mid-2000s, the selection process took place entirely on a conference call. And the process of disseminating what took place on that call was not always sophisticated. After that very first draft in 65, for example, Angel Scout Rosie Gilhausen saw news on the wire that his club had drafted a kid named Glenn Burney at number 11 overall. He made a panicked call to scouting director Roland Heyman, asking, who the heck is Glenn Burney? Heyman had to calm him down with the news that the wire report was erroneous. 
the Angels had taken Jim Spencer from Glen Burnie, Maryland. It wasn't until 1998 that MLB even publicly released the full list of draft results. It wasn't until 2002 that MLB Radio on MLB.com became the first outlet to broadcast the conference call. It wasn't until 2007 that ESPN became the first network to broadcast the first round of the draft. And it wasn't until 2009 that the draft found its forever home in MLB Network's Studio 42. Naturally, despite the difficulty of projecting who will go where in the baseball draft, MLB Network wanted to fill its studio with draft-eligible players to give viewers a first-hand look at the emotion of the evening, the looks on the faces of the country's brightest amateur players and their families as their lives changed forever. But Steven Strasburg, the San Diego State right-hander widely expected to go number one in 2009, turned the network down. They were like, oh, we want you to come out to New Jersey for it. And I just remember, like, not wanting to do that. (laughs) Many other prominent draft prospects felt the same way. The baseball draft, after all, is a crapshoot. And the awkwardness of not knowing when or if you'll get selected was a deterrent for kids who were not yet indoctrinated to what an MLB network broadcasted draft can feel and look like. In the end, only one kid, one relatively anonymous center fielder from somewhere in the swamps of Jersey, had the right combination of intestinal fortitude and regional proximity to show up. Mike Trout. The fact that we didn't get anyone to show up to this draft wasn't shocking because we went into it hearing all about agents withdrawing their clients from the draft because they didn't want to give away leverage in negotiating. We get one kid to show up. It's the only kid from our backyard in New Jersey. We're really sweating bullets that he's going to go undrafted. We only had the first 30 picks that year. That's all we televised. The player who would go on to become the greatest of his generation and the highest paid player in the history of North American team sports waited. The Baltimore Orioles select Matthew Hobgood. Waited. The Arizona Diamondbacks select Bobby Borsering. And waited. The Houston Astros select Giovanni Meyer. Until the moment finally arrived. With the 25th selection in the first round of the 2009 first-year player draft, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim select Michael Trout. Three years later, when Trout was in the midst of one of the greatest rookie seasons the sport had ever seen, and every day thereafter, the question was asked, how? How did Mike Trout fall to number 25 in the 2009 draft? What did the Angels know that no other team seemed to know? And what lessons could MLB teams learn from the one who got away? This is the story of the kid from Millville, New Jersey, who changed baseball forever. This is the story of the angel in our midst who, at one time, got lost in the mist. This is the story of how Mike Trout went from number 25 in the draft to number one in the game. 
Mike Trout hits it out. It's his first big league home run. Big fly for Mike Trout. That is his 30th home run of the season. The American League winner of the Jackie Robinson Rookie of the Year Award, Mike Trout. Big fly for Mike Trout. Congratulations on the cycle. A unanimous American League MVP, Mike Trout. Out of here, Mike Trout. Number 100. Mike Trout is a two-time winner of the American League MVP. Mike Trout receiving his sixth Silver Slugger Award. 250th career home run for Mike Trout. On kill, home run Trout. Trout going back at the wall. Lee Kelly got it. Like many superhero origin stories, this one has humble beginnings. Mike Trout comes from a small river town in Cumberland County. Millville sits 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia, 35 miles west of Atlantic City. At one time, before many of the factory buildings were abandoned and their smokestacks stopped spitting soot into the gray sky of South Jersey, Millville's abundance of silica sand made it one of the glass-making capitals of America. It was the home of Wheaton Industries, one of the largest commercial glass and ceramics manufacturers in the United States during the 20th century. But while the decline of the American heavy manufacturing industry and the ubiquity of plastic products might have quieted many of the mills that once gave Millville its name, the city's industrial ancestry is still alive and evident in the names of the Glastown Arts District, the Glastown Brewing Company, the Glastown Church, etc. Glass was the city's heritage, its identity, its most important export. That is, until Mike Trout came around. The son of Jeff Trout, a former fifth-round draft pick of the Minnesota Twins, who went on to a brief professional career that tapped out at AA Orlando in 1986, Trout had good tutelage and obvious talent from a young age. Initially, Mike pitched and played shortstop, and in Little League and the Babe Ruth League, he was simply faster, more agile, and more instinctual than the others in the Millville youth circuit, as his friend Dan McMahon remembers. But he was just, you know, way better than the rest of the kids. wasn't even really comparable back then. He was faster, stronger. I mean, he was a bigger kid, generally, uh, than the kids his age. Uh, he, uh, you know, definitely, you know, was an athlete all around, super competitive. He's been competitive since the day I knew him, whether it's, you know, you know, crab and fishing, whoever caught the most fish, you know, anything like that. He's, you know, super competitive. That's always how he's been. When Trout was progressing to Millville Senior High School, his coach, Roy Hallenbeck, wanted to know if the freshman was ready to play for the varsity squad. He asked Jeff Trout for a scouting report. Here's what Hallenbeck had to say about that. I remember, I remember asking his dad, like in the offseason, when it would come up, I'm like, geez, you know, F, can he can he hit ninth and, you know, maybe hit hit 200 and just catch the ball at second base? It's really all we need. If we do that, we'll just pull him in and he'll be fine. You know, of course, Jeff's humble too. He's like, yeah, I, I think you can do that, you know. Um, so the first thing that jumped the page with us uh, was his speed. Um, you know, even though we had followed him, we didn't realize he was that fast. Uh, you know, the day we ran the 60, we had a uh, an upperclassman that, that was a really good runner. Uh, we we had assumed he was our best runner in the program and, and Mike beat him every time. We were watching from – we run that out outside the outfield fence and we were in a dugout we were watching it from afar because the assistant was running the drill and i was like talking to my assistant like you watching this look at this kid like we didn't know he ran like that 
Trout played every day as a freshman, and by season's end, he was the toughest at bat in the Thunderbolts lineup. But Trout's local legend really began to grow his junior year, not just for what he did at the plate and on the bases, but also, as Hallenbeck explains, for his work on the mound. His junior year, he just exploded in, in every way. Uh, he was one of the best pitchers in, in the state uh, as, as a junior. Uh, he threw upper 80s with a hammer breaking ball, and you can just imagine what you've watched of him, his competitiveness and his, his, all those things. You put that on the mound, and uh, you know he, he's a tough guy out there. Mike Trout, professional pitcher? Nah, that was never a serious thought. Trout was a little wild, and that tended to work up his pitch count prematurely. Pitching, though, was just another outlet for Trout's competitive instincts. And so was basketball. Here, too, nobody was fooling themselves into believing Trout was going to be a hoop recruit. He was six foot one, maybe six foot two, and with the city of Millville having done a better job manufacturing glass than creating towering teenagers, Trout was actually the center for the Thunderbolts. Hallenbach wishes those of us who know Trout now could have seen him then if only to gain a greater appreciation for his athletic obstinance. You know, schools like Atlantic City, some of the big schools around here, they're jumping centers that are like 6'9", six, 6'8". Six, um, and he's banging up against these guys. I mean, really good, you know, centers and forwards in our area that are going on to play college. And here's Mike at 6'1 or 6'2", out-rebounding them. You know, uh, just the little, like, the, the steals and, and diving out, out of bounds into the bleachers to save balls and, and being on the floor, running over, picking up his teammates all the time when they were dead. Like, he was amazing to watch that way, and he, just, he was just relentless, and, and it, it was fun to watch. Now a center fielder, Trout remembers what it was like to be a center. Uh, I was just trying to get rebounds, and I was just you know battling down there. I obviously wasn't the tallest guy, but uh, it, was, uh, it was just fun. I just like competing. It was actually during Trout's senior year of basketball that the scouts from big league baseball teams began popping up regularly in Millville. They'd sit with his parents in the stands, and they'd have Trout fill out questionnaires after the games. It was a get-to-know-you period, a precursor to what would come that spring when, on any given day, five to seven scouts would be on hand for the Millville baseball team's games and practices. That's where the mythology of the Trout origin story gets countered by the reality. As Trout has emerged as a living legend on the field at Angel Stadium, it has been easy to cast him as a legend who materialized out of thin air, a Jersey kid whose high school heroics and bad weather against weak competition went largely unseen. But that's just not true. Trout was seen plenty by scouts on the ground. He did the area code games. He did the East Coast Pro Showcase. He did Perfect Games World Wood Bat Championship in Jupiter, Florida. He was from South Jersey, not northern New Hampshire. He was as south as northeast gets. So the scouts knew about Trout. Oh, sure, maybe some of them were spooked by the ghost of Billy Roll, the kid from Pensacon, New Jersey, who went ninth overall to the Orioles in 2006 and barely made it above A-ball. Maybe some of them had efforts to see Trout in a game thwarted by rain. Certainly, some of them didn't like the way he wrapped his top hand around the bat and just sort of muscled the ball. But Trout was so prodigious a presence that one opposing coach took the bold step of intentionally walking him with the bases loaded in a playoff game. You know, 
Barry Bonds type stuff, albeit in high school. And after making the move from shortstop to center field and no longer pitching out of fear of an arm injury, Trout hit 531 with a Jersey record 18 home runs his senior year. He glided around the base pass. He was adept in the outfield. He was a star who commanded attention in every game he played. Even on the days it rained, there was still plenty to like about Trout. Scouts would watch him interact with his teammates at indoor workouts, and they gained a greater understanding of what a positive presence and earnest individual he was, the pure joy he brings to baseball. Throughout that senior year, they were falling in love with Mike Trout. He might have begun that year ranked 80th in the country by Baseball America. And to be clear, that was 80th among high school prospects. But his draft stock was rising. So this wasn't a Mike Piazza situation. This wasn't a future Hall of Famer selected only as a favor to a friend. Trout was taken 25th overall, not in the 25th round. Every major league team knew he existed and had him high on the board. It was just a matter of what they prioritized in that first round. And for the area scouts, it was really a matter of convincing their bosses that this right-handed hitting high school kid, whose greatest asset is his raw athleticism, was worth a big, bold bet. MLB.com draft and prospects expert Jonathan Mayo is skeptical that many scouting directors were willing to make such a bet. I feel like... Teams now, it's sort of like fans, you know, who say they were at, you know, Bill Mazeroski's walk-off homer in the 1960 World Series or, or any big sporting event where, you know, if you were to poll people, there were 500,000 people who claimed to have been at the game. I think 23 teams or 22 teams, however many teams had picks in front of the Angels, uh, all, will, you know, not all, but many of them will claim that Trout was number two on their board. I'm sorry, I don't believe that. As Helen Beck further explains, Trout was a tough sell. Just with the lack of exposure and and the lack of track record, uh, I think it was a bit risky. You know, when you you just put Mike Trout on paper in 2009, you know, that's a risk. You know, there's tremendous upside, but this may not work, this may not work, this may not pan out. And, you know, quite honestly... You know, um, like Dustin Ackley, I believe, was number two pick yeah. that year out of North Carolina. Yep. Um, he had a long track record of being successful at a very high level. I mean, so if, if you're going to pull that name and your job is on the line, you know, if Dustin Ackley doesn't work out, you can say, well, I had every bit of evidence to say that it would. If you take Mike and he doesn't work out, you're fired. You know, so he was he was he was a risk at the time. But among the many scouts who made the trek to Millville to see Mike Trout, there was one who didn't view him as much of a risk at all. And to understand the Trout story, one must understand the Greg Moorhart story. Moorhart was an area scout for the Angels, but back in a previous life, he was a second round pick for the Twins in nineteen eighty four and he spent much of the next three seasons as a first baseman and outfielder with their double-A team in Orlando, where one of his teammates was an infielder he affectionately called Trouter. That's right, Jeff Trout. When they were teammates, the two were close, but baseball, like life itself, has a way of separating people. 
Trout packed it in when it became clear he would not be getting a promotion to AAA, opting instead to head back to his hometown of Millville to get into coaching and teaching. Moorhart played a few more years in the minors before eventually getting into scouting. Little did he know his scouting work would one day lead him back to Jeff Trout. Here's what Mike Trout's dad told MLB Network about his relationship with Moorhart. I didn't even know he was scouting. I had lost track of him. And then when he started to follow Mikey yeah. around, he really, really liked what he saw, and I could trust him. But there's something else you should know about Moorhart's baseball background. Back in 84, the year he got drafted out of the University of South Carolina, that same year, he was one of the many college players who tried out for the United States Olympic team, a dream team of sorts. The United States squad that would shockingly lose the gold medal to Japan included such notable names as Barry Larkin, Mark McGuire, and Will Clark before their prominent professional careers began. Just as notable, though, were some of the amateurs left off of that team. The likes of Barry Bonds and Randy Johnson were among the multitude that didn't make the cut. And so was Greg Moorhart. He didn't get a roster spot, but those Olympic tryouts in Louisville, Kentucky, gave him a frame of reference, a scale, that he would take into his scouting life. He knew what the great ones looked like before they made it big. So fast forward to the summer of 2008, the summer after Trout's junior year of high school. The East Coast Pro Showcase was approaching, and it is exactly as it sounds, a chance for evaluators for all 30 teams to get a look at East Coast kids in a competitive environment. Major League teams rotate the sponsoring duties for the teams in the showcase, and it just so happened that, in 2008, the Angels, and specifically Moorhart, were tasked with putting the Northeast team together. Moorhart had first seen Mike Trout when he was 15 years old and taking part in a workout held by Don Kohler, an old-school member of the MLB Scouting Bureau. Trout had struck Moorhart as a solid young player. He had speed, he played short, he pitched, and in 08... When Moorhart was discussing candidates for his East Coast Pro Showcase team with a Cardinal scout named Kobe Perez, Perez mentioned Trout. Moorhart relayed that conversation as follows. And I said, hey, does this, did his father play minor league baseball? And he says, yeah, I think he did. Um, and I said, man, what are the chances of that being Jeff's kid? And, uh, and it didn't take long to put those pieces together. And then, uh, yeah, shortly after that, we Mike was certainly chosen quickly to be put on the team once we, we saw him at the workout. And uh, he went to the USA trial and uh, actually in North Carolina, obviously. And uh, he didn't make that team, but he, he stuck with our team at the East Coast Pro Showcase. And, uh, but yeah, and then the, one of the first times he hit, for us was uh, at Yankee Stadium. We were going to do a workout there before we took off with the East Coast Pro Team, and we got rained. So we hit underneath in the uh, in the stadium, and Mike had a little 32-inch wooden bat. And uh, but you could just tell that at that point, Mike was uh, was kind of a cut above most of the other players. In that 10-day showcase, Trout led off every game for the Northeast team which also featured future big league pitchers Steven Matz and Marcus Stroman. Naturally, Trout did well, demonstrating both his power and his speed. He had the thickness and the strength of a linebacker, and to some that was seen as a deterrent, the thought being that a thick kid is only going to get thicker and therefore slower. 
But as Morehart explained to me, Trout had a flexibility that was unusual for his size. You know, the physicality of him was a little bit of a deception, I would say, because it's abnormal. You see any other guys running around like that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like you're, if you're a scout, maybe you're too worried about the projection and not enough about what right. is right in front of you. Yeah. Right. It was, it was actually too obvious, hmm. in my opinion. And it, I mean, obviously you can say that now, but it was, it was, um, he didn't have, you know, it was there. This was where Moorhart began to draw on his Olympic trials experience to evaluate Trout. He knew the kid had some flaws. Heck, if Barry Bonds didn't have flaws, he would have made the damn team in 84. But some flaws are more fixable than others, and Moorhart says he understood that. If I didn't have experiences like that, then, or if I didn't see guys like, you know, Mike wrapping his top hand on the bat, you know, or whatever, it's like... You know, when you look at players, you go, okay, that can change, that is, but this, this here, this is going to be tough, you know? And you look at flaws because no one's perfect, and you try to look at it, and go, okay, what can be changed, and, and, and what can't be, and what's more difficult to change, and what is significant, what's not significant, you know, what's going to stop him from getting to his potential, you know, what, you know, and, and you're calculating all these things, you know? And... Uh, a scout is not a reporter. You don't just, you know, that's the, you know, if you want to get a reporter, just get someone to give you the stats and stuff. That's, that has nothing to do with the, necessarily the job of what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to tell you, we're like a prophet down the road, what's he going to be, right? One day, during the East Coast Pro Showcase, Trout was taking BP. As usual, he was ripping some balls up the middle, pulling others. The BP pitchers didn't throw very hard and Trout was able to get on the plate and dominate every pitch. Morehart was curious about how much the kid could adjust his swing. You just want to see what he's going to do, and I said, hey, Mike, can you do me a favor and just hit it, you know, hit it down the right field line, you know, about 10 feet off the ground, just try and shoot it down the line. First one, he kind of scaled it off, and the next one, he hit about 10 feet off the line, line drive in the corner. I go, that, that's good, Mike, just go back to hitting. Well, I just want to see it. And then after that, I didn't care if he pulled every ball until the draft. That was it. Morehart was in, which meant Morehart was out. The Angels didn't have a pick in the 09 draft until numbers 24 and 25. So Morehart had to act as disinterested as humanly possible to make other teams think Trout might slip past the first round. In Trout's senior season, Morehart attended a few games, but he'd leave early to throw people off the scent. Scouts would confer with each other, as scouts tend to do, and Morehart would either act aloof or just state the obvious about Trout. He'd say things like, well, I'm not so sure about that swing. Oh, but he can really run. He didn't want people to know he had stars in his eyes. He didn't want them to know that he was filing a report to his boss, Eddie Bain, that said this 17-year-old kid had the potential to be a Hall of Famer. If anything, Morehart was rooting against Trout. He didn't want the kid to get hurt, obviously. But hey... If he happened to foul a ball off his toe and had to take the rest of the day off, that wouldn't be so bad. If an umpire rang him up on a bad strike call before he could hit a 450-foot rocket line drive, so be it. Morehart's problem was that Trout was too gifted not to attract attention. Hell, even if he hit a ground ball, he was going to get the first base in 3.9 seconds. To root against Trout because of a selfish desire to eventually get Trout was generally fruitless. 
Morehart can laugh about it now. It was a long three months, I'll tell you. <laughs> you know, it was a long three months. So Morehart knew what he had in Trout. Other scouts simply weren't as convinced. Some were so sure of his speed, but iffy on his bat, that they would ask Trout to turn around and take some swings left-handed in batting practice. Their thought was that perhaps, as a switch hitter, like his father Jeff, Trout could simply get the ball on the ground and book it down the line from the left-handed batter's box. If that sounds ridiculous, well, it's because it was. As a switch hitter, Trout would have been taking around 70% of his plate appearances from his weaker side. Adjusting his grip or his pre-swing approach would have been a lot easier than turning him into a lefty. But do you want to know something equally ridiculous? At the end of the last practice of Trout's senior year, the Millville team had its annual home run derby. Trout won it, but he won it hitting left-handed. They didn't want me to hit righty because they thought I would win too easily, so I just uh, you know, hit lefty, and I won that too. So. The coaches were roaring laughing in the dugout. It's one of Hallenbeck's favorite memories of Trout. Mike is, is a humble kid. He's everything that, he's, he, that he seems to be. Um, but amongst friends, amongst, he's an absolute killer. So he, never, he didn't let that go. He was all over those guys about that. Uh, and it was hilarious. That would be the last time Trout would need to hit left-handed. The switch-hitting experimentation, limited solely to BP, never took off. But it speaks to the length scouts were going to fully evaluate him. Morehart wasn't the only area scout filing glowing reports about Trout. As a result, quite a few front office folks made sure to get their eyes on Trout in the lead-up to the draft to see for themselves if he was worthy of a first-round selection. San Francisco Giants general manager Brian Sabi had visited Millville. So did famed Moneyball GM Billy Bean of the Oakland A's. And that was in addition to the steady stream of scouting directors who would flow through Millville, much like the Maurice River. Here's one example of how a team missed on Trout. D-back scouting director Tom Allison had received enthusiastic reports on Trout from scout Sean Barton and Matt Marullo. Arizona also had a pro scout named Joe Boringer, who was from Millville High School. The D-backs, therefore, knew Trout inside and out. And the first time Allison saw Trout in a game, he saw enough to know Trout was a serious candidate for either of the D-back's first-round picks at 16 or 17. But because Trout was from the Northeast, because he didn't have as many reps as some others on the D-back's draft board, because of that funky way he gripped the bat, Allison wasn't totally 100% convinced. And then, one day, in May of 2009, it rained. Not in Millville, but on Long Island where Steven Matz was scheduled to pitch for his high school team. Allison had a connection at the Philly airport on his way to see Matz when he got word from his area scout that Matz's game was rained out. So on a whim, Allison rented a car and drove back down to Millville to get a second look at Trout, who simply didn't have a great day that day. Here's what Allison has to say about that now. You realize how difficult scouting is, and you try and get multiple looks, but... Maybe sometimes one look is good enough because you get everything you need to see from the player, which I did with Mike that first time. But that second time you go back and you start picking the player apart maybe a little bit too much. And it is something that I've used as a learning tool moving forward. And again, very appropriate during this drafting time is 
hey, sometimes staying objective is very, very tough when subjectively you see certain things. So uh, that was uh, a moment that I, I not only tried to learn from, but take and, and help educate those that I get to touch moving forward. So rain on an island might have kept Mike Trout out of the desert. Now, we're not picking on Allison here, because in taking A.J. Pollock at number 17 and Paul Goldschmidt in the eighth round, he did pretty well in that 09 draft. But Allison's story is indicative of the small twists of fate and the small flaws in logic that contributed to Trout's slide. And for the record, it wasn't just big league teams that missed on Trout. The elite college programs missed on him too. Trout's collegiate commitment was to East Carolina. Trout had every intention of going pro, and as the draft approached and the network invited him in studio, Jeff Trout had some trepidation about accepting the offer, knowing how awkward it would be if his son slipped to the untelevised second round. But Trout's mother, Debbie, saw it as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Here's what Trout's parents told MLB Network about that. Really nervous about this, but... And it's funny because I wasn't. No, no, Like, I don't no, know, like, no. why I wasn't, but, like, I, I wasn't. I just didn't want it to be a moment where he slips and he doesn't get picked. And we're up there and, like, you know, boy, and the camera's, you know, coming to you. The draft began as everybody expected it to, with Steven Strasburg going to the Washington Nationals. The Mariners were known to be all in on Dustin Ackley at number two, and that played out as expected, too. Same with the Padres pick of Georgia high schooler Donovan Tate at number three. Really, to those who had been around Millville Senior High School in the spring of 09, there were only a few realistic landing spots for Trout. Hallenbeck remembers six teams other than Moorhart's Angels who scouted Trout heavily that year. The Tigers, Red Sox, Mets, Phillies, Yankees, and Giants. Among those clubs, only the Giants at number six and the Tigers, at number nine, drafted prior to the Angels. Both of those teams went with highly touted high school arms, Zach Wheeler to San Francisco and Jacob Turner to Detroit. Moorhart, having tracked the comings and goings of various scouts and having talked with his old buddy Trouter enough to have a sense of which clubs were in serious pursuit of Mike Trout, analyzed the draft pecking order and identified only one other team as a serious threat to take the kid ahead of the 24th or 25th pick. I counted the teams down, you know, and I, I thought that if I could get past Oakland um, at 13, I thought I was home free. In 2017, Billy Bean spoke to MLB Network about the A's approach to their pick at number 13 overall. I'm sure every guy says this story that didn't take him, uh, but, uh, you know, we're going, oh, you know, we saw him, we liked him, you know, 0 for 5, we didn't get to see him run, we don't know, if, you know, we can't validate that. The Oakland Athletics select Grant Green. Gulp. <laughs> when the A's took Green, Moorhart's heart skipped a beat. Inside the MLB Network draft room in Secaucus and in living rooms across the country, people began to feel sorry for the kid who drove two hours just to watch other high schoolers get selected ahead of him. Greg Amsinger says the awkwardness grew as the night dragged on and Trout was left waiting. Because it's our first draft, we show him and his family like 30 times. Like, I felt like it was twice the segment. Well, Mike Trout gets drafted. Like, so we're really worried that this kid is not going to hear his name called. 
All right, so the Angels have the next pick. Let's find out what the, what's going on with the Angels. Jonathan Mayo is down on the floor with Mike Trout. Jonathan, take it away. Well, Mike, uh, you know, I know things uh, can get a little antsy here, but how are you enjoying the, the atmosphere here uh, while you're waiting to hear your name call? Uh, it's definitely a great experience and uh, having fun with my family and friends and uh, coaches up in the stands. And uh, it's a great all-around experience. Now, I know you probably heard about where you would go, so you, I'm hoping that you haven't been getting too nervous yet. I'm getting nervous. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like all, every kid around here, and uh, see where it goes from there. Can, can you imagine, obviously, as, as a kid, this is what you've been waiting for. Uh, what's going through your mind as you're waiting for this to happen? Um, I mean, I'm nervous, and uh, it's a dream come true, hopefully. And hopefully we'll hear Michael Trout's name uh, come off the board pretty soon, guys. It might have been uncomfortable inside the network studio, but inside the Angels' draft room, every pick not named Mike Trout was a cause for celebration. Because it wasn't just Morehart who was infatuated with Trout. Angels scouting director Eddie Bain, the man who had the final say in the matter, the one who would be putting his neck on the line, had followed his area scouts' advice, gone to a game in Millville, and after just five innings, turned to national cross-checker Jeff Malinoff and said, Let's get out of here. Here's what Bain remembers about that. Got in the car and Jeff said, what are you doing? And I said, this guy's there. We're taking him. He said, what do you mean? What He popped up twice and, you know, he threw pretty good in infield and that was his lease tool. And he flew around the bases and he had that, you know, SEC safety body even back then. And I said, yeah, I, this is, I, there was a, the guy that went third in the country to the Padres, Tate, um, he, I, I had seen him about three days before that. And I, I told Jeff, I said, there's no comparison. I mean, to me and nobody liked Mike better than the kid in Georgia, uh, the way I, you know, probably other than Mo. And uh, I mean, in all of baseball, because the guy in Georgia was, and I had watched him, and I didn't, I didn't, I liked the athlete, but I didn't really care for him. And um, but when I saw Mike, I said, he's better than that guy. For Bain, the question was not whether to take Trout in the first round; it was where. The Angels had back-to-back picks at numbers 24 and 25. Why did they have back-to-back picks? Well, the answer dates back to the 2008 trade deadline. The Angels were in contention in the AL West, and they shipped first baseman Casey Kochman and a prospect named Steven Merrick to the Braves for Mark Teixeira. Though the Angels were beat by Boston in the division series, it was still considered a steal of a deal. Teixeira had a monster second half, with 13 homers and 43 RBI in just 54 games with the Halos. Tex hit that one well. Deep center field, Jeremy Reed watches it go. Mark Teixeira has hit it out. His 10th as an Angel, his 30th of the year, and it gives the Angels a 3-2 lead. And it's also number 200 in his career. The Angels tried to re-sign Teixeira at season's end, but they couldn't compete with the Yankees' eight-year, $180 million deal. The irony is that in losing Teixeira to the Yankees, the Angels may have beaten the Yankees to Trout because the pick at number 25 they used to take Trout was the free agent compensation pick they received from New York after the Teixeira signing. Actually, their pick at number 24 was also free agent compensation for losing closer Francisco Rodriguez to the Mets. 
So if not for the compensation rules that have since been dramatically altered, Trout might have wound up with either New York team. The Mets scouted him heavily, but didn't have a pick until the second round. They would use that pick on Mats, and Yankee scouting director Damon Oppenheimer was head over heels for Trout, but didn't have a pick until number 29 overall. He would use it on a Texas high school center fielder named Slade Heathcott. Had the Angels had only one pick at 24 or 25, would they have used it on Trout? Or would they have used it on Randall Gritchick, the high school outfielder they took at number 24? The answer, like so many things in life, is complicated. Just because Gritchick was the Angels' first of two picks doesn't mean he was their first of two choices. Bain says his selection order came down to some late signing bonus shenanigans involving Trout's representative, Craig Landis. Bain had had dinner with Trout and his parents and felt they were all on the same page as far as what Trout's signing bonus could and should be. Remember, this was before teams had strict bonus pools that dictated their total draft expenditures. Players could rise and fall in the draft because of their perceived signability, and it was important for teams to have a grasp of what the player's financial number would be before they made their selection. In taking Trout at 25 instead of 24, the Angels were bringing the recommended bonus money for Trout's slot down ever so slightly. It was a small, subtle shot at his agent, as Bain explains. Quite honestly, Anthony, Craig Landis had pissed me off before the draft. He called me and told me that I need. After that dinner with Jeff and everything, and, and Debbie, and we had we had kind of talked. You know, you know what the money is here, and oh yeah, we're ready to go. And hopefully, you know, Mike can be an angel and everything else. And Craig called me and told me I needed to call Jeff, and um, he called me and Mo and told him we needed to call Jeff and talk to him because the price had changed. And I said. No, oh, no, I don't need to talk to Jeff. I've uh, I've already talked to him. We had dinner. He said, no, no, this is after you need to call Jeff. And I said, nah, Craig, I don't need to talk to Jeff. I think I think I got the signability down. And Craig, Craig wasn't real happy with me, but I, I, I said, you know, this is what we think is, you know, we, we know Mike would like to play. In light of that conversation with Landis and no subsequent conversation with Jeff Trout, the Angels were actually taking a bit of a risk in taking Trout. What if the money wasn't enough and he decided to honor his commitment to East Carolina? What if all the anticipation was for nothing? With the 25th selection in the first round of the 2009 first-year player draft, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim select Michael Trout. This is an excellent draft. This guy's a five-tool player. He's got the power and speed, that combination you don't see of. He reminds a lot of people of Craig Biggio, who's sitting right in here. You look at him physically, that's the kind of guy he is. I think it's a great selection for Eddie Bain and his staff, and I look forward to seeing him in Anaheim. All right, well, let's hear from Mike Trout right now. Jonathan Mayo is standing by with him. When did you have a sense that the Angels, who often do like high school talent, were a team that were seriously interested in you? I got a feeling uh, before the draft and things came down the way it came. Just how exciting an experience this is for you now that you've heard your name called. Uh, it's a great experience, and i uh, waited my whole life on to do this and uh, got the opportunity to. I'm telling you, when you look back at the 2009 draft, what are you going to remember? Steven Strasburg, and you're going to remember Mike Trout. I'm sorry, that's no, what you're going to remember. You're, you hit it this right is fantastic. Yeah. I, I'm excited for this young man. 
He is a nice player. When you watch him on, on tape, when we watched 250 kids out here playing, college and high school on video last week and a half, he's one of the top athletes that you're going to see. The Angels, like everybody else, had TVs in their draft room. And the broadcast of Trout's reaction told them everything they needed to know. Bain vividly remembers watching that moment. When we picked him, he leaped up off the bench and was pumped as, out of his mind. You know, so um, if that, that, that reaction was worth everything. I said, you know, I told Rick and Jeff, he doesn't look too upset to me to be drafted by us. He's jumping up and down and everything. It only took the Angels a couple weeks to get Trout to sign. He received a $1.2 million signing bonus. That's really nothing special for a first-rounder, but Trout's family knew it could be just a blip on the radar relative to his potential big league earnings. My parents were both teachers, so was, uh, you know, education was definitely before anything. So, um, you know, I think once they offered you know, me that kind of money, I couldn't turn down as a young kid. Trout would go on to accept a six-year, $144.5 million extension with the Angels in 2014, and then a record-shattering 12-year, $430 million extension this past spring. It's been a fruitful relationship for both sides, to say the least. Shortly after he signed his first pro contract with the Angels, Trout took a round of BP with the big league ball club. He hit some balls into the rocks beyond the left center field wall at Angel Stadium. Hitting coach Mickey Hatcher wanted to see if the kid could hit some pitches away, so we threw him away and Trout smacked some of those pitches into the right field bleachers. When one of the Angels' coaches remarked to a scout, gee whiz, this kid's got a lot of power for 17 years old. Can he run? The scout replied, can he run? He's faster than Sean Figgins. The secret was out. The Angels had acquired a bona fide baseball freak, and all of Moorhart's assumptions about Trout were quickly confirmed. Morehart recalls the voicemail he got from Bain with the report from Trout's rookie league debut in Arizona. Just want to let you guys know, Trout had six at-bats. He was on six times. He had four hits, two walks, and first pitch, breaking ball, took a first strike. Second pitch, breaking ball, hit it off the, hit it off the center field fence, and off we went. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> off he went. Mike Trout, the greatest draft find of them all. I think it was it was kind of good for me because you know I try to prove people wrong. You know, obviously, you know a lot of teams passed on me, and you know just uh, you know put some put some an edge, you know, chip on my shoulder, knowing that uh, you know teams you know passed up on me. But if you want to know anything about the absurdity and difficulty of the scouting industry, know this: Eddie Bain was fired by the Angels in the winter after the 2010 season, before Trout even made his big league debut. Morehart's contract with the club was not renewed after 2014, which, coincidentally enough, was Trout's first MVP year. In the years since the Trout draft, teams have increasingly turned to analytics, not scouting expertise, to guide their draft decisions. Maybe they're willing to pay more attention to South Jersey than they were in 2009, and maybe there will never be another draft miss quite as large as Mike Trout. But as long as humans not clairvoyance, are involved in this process, the big whiffs will continue. Morehart doesn't claim to have all the answers, but he says he does see the danger in groupthink. People follow for a lot of different reasons they follow. 
because usually it's employment. Mm-hmm. And so what stops you from being creative is fear. As for Trout, he showed no fear showing up to the MLB Network set that night in 2009. He might have been understated in his approach, but he had understanding of his ability and where he belonged. He continues to demonstrate that every single day, playing the game hard and playing it well. Just 27 years old and in his eighth major league season, Trout has already put up numbers worthy of Cooperstown consideration. But as friends like Dan McMahon can tell you, success hasn't changed him. I mean, it doesn't change much. I mean, we don't really talk too much baseball. Like when he's home, it's pretty much like your normal friend, you know, wants to go fishing, go golfing, you know, play you in Madden, try to beat you in that. I mean, obviously he doesn't, he uh, sends you in to get food and stuff for him. So he doesn't get, you know, heckled up the door a little, I guess, but. <laughs> One thing that has changed in Millville is the name of the high school baseball field. Appropriately, it's Mike Trout Field. But Trout's jersey has not been retired by the Thunderbolts. Instead, it is awarded. Each year, before he departs for spring training camp with the Angels, Trout visits his alma mater to bestow his number upon a player selected by Coach Hallenbeck as the embodiment of what the program is trying to accomplish. A player who brings the same enthusiasm and positivity to Millville High that Trout once did. It's the number that Trout once wore on his back, and the number that, in retrospect, should have accompanied him at the 2009 MLB Draft. Number one. I hope you enjoyed this look at Mike Trout's draft story. Thanks to my producer, Marissa Morris, and thanks to MLB.com reporter Rhett Bollinger for his interview assistance with this episode. Thanks to Mike Trout, Greg Morehart, Roy Hallenbeck, Eddie Bain, Dan and John McMahon, Greg Amsinger, and Jonathan Mayo for helping us tell this story. If you like the show, be sure to download the other episodes in this series to hear the 2009 draft stories of Steven Strasburg, Nolan Arenado, Paul Goldschmidt, J.D. Martinez, and Jeff Luno. You can subscribe to the series wherever you get your podcasts. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us to help others find the show. Until next time, I'm Anthony Kastrovitz, and thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or... I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.